And we are nearing the end. And so we are picking up in Mark chapter 12 uh, today. But there are a couple of things that I want to remind you about Mark. And I like to remind you every time that I come up here. First is that Mark is the action gospel. So it's packed with stories and lessons from Jesus. And I love it because I've got that ADHD brain where I'm like all over the place. And so when I get like story after story after story and they're all pulling me in and drawing me in and there's always this like nugget of information it's pull it, it is something that stands out to me um and in fact the uh title of this lesson and the sermon was almost jesus teaches part 32. <laughs> we we've gone through jesus teaches jesus teaches um this week we're talking about jesus responds and the second thing i like to remind you of is, as we work through these passages is a lot of them may be familiar uh, and ones that we kind of grew up with, but we can still learn and we can still grow from them, right? Yes. I encourage you today to open your heart to what the Spirit has to tell you and allow Him to change your life. Because guys, the power of the Holy Spirit is transformational. And it can take just a nugget of scripture that sinks into your heart and the Spirit can speak to you and your life can change dramatically. So, um, to give you guys a little bit of a picture of what it looks like for me when I do Bible study, and, and perhaps this happens to you as well, I often have one of three experience, experiences, and each is flowing from one to the next. I usually start out by feeling like a hunter or like an archaeologist or maybe like a prospector, wondering about and fairly sure that there's something good there, but I'm not exactly sure what that is yet. So I take a few samples, I, I smell the air, I set up the, a camera, I do some digging around. In other words, I read over the passage a few times, I talk to God about it, I mull it over, and I find a study Bible or two, and I read the notes. Then I suddenly strike something. Something, uh, it, it comes quickly, and, and other times it takes a little bit. But it always happens. And suddenly there's a moment when something jumps off the page. So I scout for long enough and find a set of tracks and find that artifact or find that nugget and I start to dig. And that's when my experience switches and now I become a miner. And so I get out my shovel and I get out my pickaxe and I fire up my commentaries, uh, my Bible translation, my, my dictionaries, my studies, my fact books, and I start to dig and dig about what I've just found. And I want to know where it comes from. I want to know how it got there. I want to know what it's made of. And I want to know what it's worth and what I can do about it. And that's where it gets really exciting. That is my favorite part. And just to clarify my illustration, when I'm preaching through a book of the Bible, like we have been for the better part of this year, it's not like I approach a verse with a specific idea in mind. Okay, so that would be like showing up to a dig site with my own bones or with my own gold. No, when we come to Bible study, our job isn't to pull things out of Scripture or worse, to put things into it, but to simply find what God is saying and to teach that. But that's not the end of the Bible study journey for me. Now, I'm not alone in this, and I assume that I'm not. There's usually a third part of my experience where I go from blissfully mining to feeling like I'm drinking from a fire hose. All of a sudden, I realize once again that no matter what the truth is, no matter what it is that I am looking at, God has been saying it to generations of people over 
and over for millennia. And I start to realize that when the Bible speaks, it speaks consistently with a voice that always agrees with itself. That the Holy Spirit has declared every word of the Bible. And I see Jesus in every verse, the mercy of God in every chapter. And as the few verses that I'm reading uh, point to more and more verses in Scripture, from Genesis to Proverbs to Psalms to the prophets, as I learn the historical context of the verse, I realize how important it was at the time, but how universal it is for all time. And suddenly, the truth God wants to tell me that day becomes clear, and I realize it's few, a few of its implications. I come face to face with my own sin and with the sin of the world around me and how woefully short I fall in God's eyes. And I get a glimpse of Jesus's true nature. And I realize how high and how deep his mind is compared to mine. And I start to realize that his ways are so much more different than mine and that his thoughts are so much better than mine. And it gets a little bit overwhelming. And so I dig in and I find that there's too much gold and too many jewels to mine for one person to ever study or to ever carry himself, and too many tracks to follow for even a hundred hunters to track. And it brings me both elation and it brings me despair. Elation as I experience the living and the active word of God, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating and dividing of my soul and my spirit, and despair as I realize that I will never be able to fully explain even that one verse in my whole lifetime. There's just so much that is contained in scripture. And if you have ever experienced the power of the word, if you have ever experienced this, this kind of uh, moment where you realize that there is so much to learn in scripture, I want to hear you say amen this morning. Amen. amen. Yes, when we're diving into scripture, and this is something that when we're uh, in our normal Sunday night service with the kids, or when we're at Bible study, we like to remind them that like, hey, we might have grown up hearing a lot of these stories. But guess what? God is still teaching us daily. The words of Jesus ring true forever, and they don't get old, and they don't get musty, and they're not put up on a shelf and something that, hey, we learned that, and we tackled that, and we moved on. There is always something new for us to be learning. And I say that today to remind you that even though this may be a passage of Scripture that you've heard before, open your hearts to what the Spirit has for you. And, and the awesome thing is that I get to do this all the time. And it's the greatest part of getting to do what I do. And perhaps you've experienced a little bit of that over these past Sundays as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark together and through your study at home. And I say all that because I feel like we've covered a lot of big topics uh, and hot topics over the course of this year. In a short time, we've covered identity. We've covered submission to leadership. We've covered stewardship, um, how to love others, suffering and martyr martyrdom. And that is a lot of information. Last week we covered the question of what is most important to God? How can I love people who make it hard to love them? How many of you guys last week that sermon spoke to you? I say I, I know that that is something that speaks to my heart. Remember I work with teens. So <laughs> sometimes teens will make it hard to love them. I love you guys, but sometimes you make it hard. Um, no, nah, they're, they're awesome, but it speaks to my heart too. And so the question was, who is my neighbor? And that's enough to chew on for a lifetime. And here we are again about to cover, uncover something else. 
I don't think anyone would blame us if we feel a little overwhelmed by all the amazing things that Jesus spoke in the final days of his life. The questions, they come fast and furious, and when he answers them, he doesn't use long sermons and long explanations, but short, powerful, bullet-like answers piercing straight to the heart of the issue. And so when we read these sections and try to take them more slowly, we find that they are incredibly condensed, right? And that's what I love about reading through Mark, (laughs) is that it is all packed in there. And, And again, that's true about today's passage too, of course. So let's give it a read and see what God has for us today. So first notice, notice that today's passage, which uh, is Mark chapter 12, verses 38 through 40, um, it, it's different than our last bunch that we went through in chapter 12, and that it's not motivated by a question asked by someone else, but comes about because Jesus decided to point it out himself. Okay, so leading up to this point, people were asking Jesus questions. The scribes, the Pharisees were coming to him and asking him questions. The people were asking him questions. But in this case, he's actually bringing up something himself. And remember last week where in verse 34, Jesus had answered the scribes' questions. And it says, no one dared to ask him any more questions. See, they saw the power of Jesus. They saw how powerful he was and and how much authority his words carry. So after the Pharisees and the scribes stopped talking, Jesus went on a little bit of a walking tour in the temple area. And it says in verse 37 that a great throng or a great crowd followed him around, listening to his teaching, captivated by his every word. And I am sure that this was much to the annoyance of the Sanhedrin who were there in the temple watching all of their people that are supposed to be following them, following around this Jesus guy. So let's read from Mark 12, 38 through 40 here. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like the greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. What we're reading here is a summary or a condensed version of what Matthew 23 calls the seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees, which is a much more lengthy and specific indictment of Israel's teachers. There the phrase that he repeats over and over is the word, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then calls them out for burdening the people with extreme rules that go far beyond God's law. Last week we talked about the 613 laws that are in Scripture. Like Travis had pointed out, a lot of times we think the Ten Commandments. That was the law that they had to follow. But it's actually so much greater than that. There was so much law. There were 613. And now the the scribes and the... um, Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time had built up even more laws on top of that to help people stay in line with like the Sabbath, for example. And these verses also called them out for their belief that they are above others, for their two-facedness and their total lack of understanding of their place before God, for their lack of care for the poor, for their narcissistic shallow, superficial, conceited vanity, and the hate they had in their hearts for God and for his Christ. 
And it's an extremely powerful entire chapter of Scripture that Mark condenses into a few verses. And here you see the scribes as they are. They're vain men who walk around from place to place clothed in expensive wear. They're wearing uh, white robes, flowing robes, symbolizing their religious purity. They were meant to be work, working during religious duties, but these leaders had taken to wearing them all the time. They, they had taken these garbs that were only supposed to be worn when they were actually doing the teaching, and they were wearing them always, even in the marketplaces, to remind people of how important they were. They would seek out crowds of people in synagogues and feasts and expect special treatment because of who they are. They loved the perks that came with their job. Now, this reminded me of a story of when I was in college. It was my freshman year, and this was before I had gone to seminary. So um, I, I had walked into class, and we had all sat down, and one of the students that was in the rows had raised their hand, and they were like, hey, uh, Mr. So-and-so, uh, I have a question. And the professor went off. He said, I am not Mr. So-and-so. I am Dr so-and-so. And then we listened to like a three-minute tirade about how hard he had worked for his degree. And three minutes doesn't sound like a long time, but when you're getting yelled at for three minutes, it feels like a very long time. So um, it, it kind of reminds me of how the scribes were and the, the way that they demanded to be spoken to and the way that they demanded to be spoken about. So they also had a lot of power, which they would use to abuse people. And I think that when we hear about the scribes, uh, we kind of just lump them in with the Pharisees and we say, hey, they're kind of like in the same tribe, which kind of, they were interpreters of the, of the law, but they acted as both lawyers and they acted as theologians and they assisted people with financial as well as spiritual affairs. So in some cases, they actually managed people's money for them. And while scribes are not permitted to charge for their services, nothing prohibits them from soliciting contributors for their personal support. And they're reaching out to them and saying, hey, you know, I did help you a little bit here, so uh, hey, where's my money? And a, a scribe was forbidden from being paid for their teachings, so they had to either support themselves with a the secular job, like the Apostle Paul did as a tent maker, or be dependent on the gifts of others. And this whole setup uh, easily led to them to start to expect gifts whenever they would teach, which led to finding out that they were, finding out which were the most generous, gullible of those they were meant to be helping. So they would go out and they would look for the person that would be the most likely to fall for their schemes and their tricks. They would use long prayers to seem smarter and more religious, and to build trust. And I do want to clarify that in this passage that we read, Jesus isn't condemning long prayers as we are told to pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. He's saying we shouldn't pray grandly as if we're sin sincerely talking to God when we're really looking for attention. And that, that's what this passage is, is about. Pretense in this verse is uh, from the Greek root word prophesis, which means to, for show or with a false motive. So one of the problems with praying for worldly re reasons is that you only get worldly rewards. 
like like the bad lawyers and religious shysters today they would the uh, scribes would integrate or sorry ingratiate themselves to some of the widows hoping to get into their wills or to look for loopholes in the law which would allow them to take other people's possessions they are out on the hunt and this was especially effective against defenseless widows who had no one to advocate for them because the people that were supposed to be there for them the people that were supposed to be helping them manage their money the people that were supposed to be loving them and being the representatives of God were the, actually the ones who were spiritually and financially abusing them I want you guys to picture lawyers walking around the grocery stores, going to church groups, potlucks, restaurants, always clad in their best power suit, attending fur funerals and looking for grieving, trusting people, people who are in mourning, passing out business cards and using their charisma and using their knowledge to steal their homes, take their money and leave them destitute. That is exactly what we're seeing here today. And is it any wonder that Jesus says they will receive the greater condemnation? At the end of Matthew's account of this incident in Matthew 23, Jesus calls the religious leaders vipers and sentenced them to hell and compares them to Cain, who killed his brother Abel out of jealousy for his relationship to God. These were the people that they were supposed to be able to trust. These were the people that the Jews were supposed to be able to look to, to see God represented here. And they were the people who claimed that they were representing God. Now, as Jesus is walking and he's teaching and he is firing back at the Sanhedrin that had blocked his way to the temple and tried to trap him with questions, he is making his way to what is called the court of the women. And there stood a series of boxes with trumpet-shaped tops for people to place various offerings in the temple tax. There he will sit down and he's going to make another extremely important point. And we're picking up again in Mark 12. 41 through 44. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich, rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Jesus sits and he turns his eyes towards these contribution chests, at the trumpets, and for a long time, he says nothing. It's the Passover and Jerusalem at its busiest, and there are, lots, there are a lot of people there that are paying their taxes and making the required and voluntary offerings to God. So this is a big time of hubbub of trade and the most important thing is these offerings and the sacrifices that are being made the whole crowd with him watches person after person come to the box and drop in their offering now the trumpets that are coming out of these are made of metal and each coin that goes in is making a clanging noise and there are some people that are making a lot of noise. I remember reading at one point that some people would have their offering turned into even more coins so that they could be seen and heard pouring more into the noisy receptacle and some even throwing their coins into the coffers from a distance. And that was f for maximum clang. <laughs> just, you just picture them shooting out there. Um, 
And I want you to notice the contrast between these two stories. In the first, we have Jesus giving a warning um, and a description of the scribe. It says, beware the scribes, the hypocrites, the play actors, the religious pretenders, the ones who loved the show but were just whitewashed tombs, dead, looking good on the outside, but dead and disgusting on the inside. Then he points to the polar opposite. A poor widow beneath anyone's notice. She's poor, which means she likely doesn't have anyone helping to take care of her. No family, no help, no protector, no social service, no legal recourse. Was she the victim of one of the scribes? That we don't know, but we do know that she is in extreme need. She has come to the temple humbly. She's come without advertisement in obedience to God's call to give in need with an absolute trust in God. And how do I know this? Because Jesus says she put in two small coins or two lepta, which is one sixty-fourth of a day's wages, and it was all that she had. A little math and conversion says, if the minimum wage in America is seven twenty-five, and you work eight hours a day, then you have fifty-eight dollars, and divide that by sixty-four, uh, and you have ninety cents. By today's standards, this widow was so poor that she had less than a dollar to her name. It was too small to be the temple tax. See, the temple tax would have been more, uh, more substantial than that would, would have needed to be paid there. And it must, be, must have been put into the box for voluntary gifts. For voluntary gifts. This was a gift given out of both obedience and given out of love. She didn't have to put in both coins. She could have kept one. She needed to bring an offering, and she looked at her coins, and she knew that she needed God's blessing a lot more than she needed a single coin. If you're here this morning, and you know that you need God's blessing more than you need the money that is in your bank account, let me hear you say amen. Amen. Guys, (laughs) this is so important. And so now we make the contrast. Jesus pronounced judgment and doom on the rich, rich scribe who looked amazing on the outside. He had wealth. He had connections, a fancy degree, got the best seats to all the events, and was respected by all of the elites in the city. And he commends the widow for giving to God willingly, out of love. But it's not about the money. It's about the heart. Jesus calls over his disciples and says, this poor widow put in more than all of those contributing. So how was it more? Because everyone else had given out of their riches, and she had given out of her poverty. She had given it all. It's not about the amount that we give, because God couldn't care less about the amount that we give. See, God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our time. God doesn't need our lives. He doesn't need them. God owns everything. God wants for nothing. He can raise people out of mud. He created gold and jewels from nothing, which is ex nihilo. And it's not about God wanting our riches, God wants our hearts. And the widow's very small gift proved that she loved God, that she needed God, 
that she thanked God, she obeyed God, and trusted God more than she trusted anyone or anything else. She gave beyond what was convenient, beyond what was safe, beyond what was expected, and gave it all. It was the one of the, uh, it was one of the few, perhaps the only gift that was accepted by God that day. Sure, the contribution boxes in Passover in Jerusalem, those contribution, contribution boxes were probably filled to the top. But there were only two little coins that God found value in, and those were the widow's offering. She gave all she had to live on. Literally translated, this is saying, she gave her whole life. She gave her whole life that day. Those wealthy scribes foolishly thought that the riches were something to be accumulated on earth and spent their life amassing that wealth. The widow knew that there was more to life than having a coin in her hands. The scribes found security in their wealth and used their powers to crush anyone that they could. The widow found her security in God, knowing that he is the highest authority. The widow gave lovingly and willingly. So this morning, it, this poses the question, what do we do with this? Where, where do we take this? How do we apply this? And let me draw a couple of applications here. I see two that stand out to me. One is that we have to get our priorities straight. Now, this is an old application, but it is relevant to every age that we stand in. We talked about loving God and loving our neighbor last week, and we get a very similar reminder this week. We have to ask ourselves what our priorities are, because if they don't line up with God's, then we are in trouble. Trouble in facing God's judgment for disobedience, and trouble in not being able to flourish under his rule. If we have the priorities of the scribes, which were pride, position, power, prestige, wealth, worldly security, and then we have it all wrong. And this is where it starts to feel like drinking from a fire hose because every book of the Bible condemns this life. It doesn't condemn the wealthy, but the love of wealth. Jesus in Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 6, 10 says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The Apostle John in 1 John 2, 15 says, Do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The author in Proverbs 38 begs God to give him enough but no more, saying, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be fully and deny you, be full and deny you who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And it's in, in, in its wisdom, looks square at us and simply says, Do not toil with acquired wealth, but be discerning enough to desist. And the psalmist says, For the wicked, boasts of the, his heart and desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. 
seeking wealth and worldly security is absolutely incompatible with loving God and with loving others. A life committed to pursuing gain and comfort dependent on appearances and on applause will always, always, always corrupt one's soul, distract them from God, and sit and cause them to use people rather than to serve them. This week, I want you guys to sit and ask yourself if wealth, power, or status are something that you're chasing. And let's get real here for a moment. This is something that a lot of people in our area struggle with. What's the next thing that I can have that will set me up for life and make me more comfortable? What is the biggest house that I can get? Where is that next promotion? Where is the best school that I can hold that precious and prestigious degree from? Guys, this is the stuff, if we are seeking to build ourselves up, if we are seeking to find security in this world, we are always going to come up short. We are always going to be nervous. We are always going to be looking for that next thing because that next thing isn't going to fill the void. That next thing isn't what's important. The second application is to answer the question, what are you holding back? We see a picture of... of, Jesus in the widow. She trusts God, obeys at great cost. Remember, it's her entire life and gives her life for the sake of others. That's Jesus. The widow put in two coins, though she could have kept one. Jesus gave his whole life to save us. So I ask you again today, what are you holding back? What Have you not given God permission to have in your life? What has God asked you to do and you've said no? Is there something that you are supposed to do to give, to trust God with, that you are still holding on in your hands, keeping control of, because you simply can't trust him with it? With a tight grip. Are you tithing? Are you giving generously of the work, uh, uh, to the work of God, first at church and then to other people who need it? Or are you f- refusing to obey God in that way? What about daily obedience and Bible reading and your prayer? Are you holding back your time from God because you've gotten it, got it inside of your head that your time is your own, that you own your time? Guess what? God owns our time, all of it. He owns our finances, all of it. Is there a sin or a habit that you know you need to give up, but you won't? I mentioned this at the top of today's sermon, but Jesus is nearing the end of his life in this chapter. And this is the final public ministry that he is going to do in Mark. Everything else that he does is between himself and his disciples. And he leaves off with this warning. He has terrible words to say to religious pretenders who look like they have it all put together, but are in fact corrupt on the inside. He calls them hypocrites. Let us be free from hypocrisy and give God everything. No holding back. 
this morning, if you're here and you, you are uh, feeling convicted, know that this is the Spirit speaking to you. Uh, I have to wrestle with this myself. Like I said, and what Travis says a lot every week is when he looks at his Bible study and when he's reading through Scripture, he's preaching to himself first. I'm preaching to me first and foremost. I do not want to build up wealth for myself. It's easy to get stuck in this past year that we've been through. It's easy to say, I need to build up my security. I need to figure out what I can do to make myself safe and set myself up for life because who knows when the next big thing is going to come. Guess what? That doesn't matter. Our lives are here today. They are gone tomorrow. They are like a vapor in the wind. They are so short. And the security that you set up for yourself here is not going to be dependable at all. There is nothing that you can set up on this earth, nothing that you can do, no job that you can get, no degree that you can get, nothing at all that will keep you absolutely secure in this life. But guess what? There is one person who can secure you for all of eternity. And he died for your sins. He died for you. So today, be willing to give him back what's already his. Your life is already his. Be willing to surrender that today. I ask again, what are you holding back from God? I want you, during this this time of communion, we're about to go into communion, I want you to be praying and asking, God, what is it in my heart that I need to let go of? What am I holding on to? What am I gripping so tight in my life that this sermon is making me angry? What is it that I am holding on to or what I'm thinking about that I can't let go of? And ask God to take it today, because guess what? He can that sin in your life that you're holding on to because you're afraid to let it go, because you're afraid of what life looks like without it, God can take it today. That fear of of tithing, of giving, because you don't know what's going to happen with your finances, God can take that today. That fear that we have of our future and where our security is and uh, and whether there's going to be money in the bank tomorrow for us to be able to go and, and take this trip that we have coming up in the fall. and Whatever it is, God can take that today. So as we go into our time of communion, if there is something that you need to give to God and you need prayer over it, our elders will be in the back. I will be in the back and we're going to pray for you and we're going to help you through it. But guess what? God is the one who releases you from it. So if you want to stay in your seat and you want to pray about that today and say, God, take it. God can do that right where you are. If you've been holding back your life and you're like, hey, I don't know if this whole Jesus thing is for me. I don't know if I'm ready to give my life to him. And you've just been sitting there and saying, I'm waiting for the sign. This is the sign. Today is the day to give God what is his already. Jesus loves you guys so much. I I can't express that from deep enough in my heart that he was willing to go to the cross for you. That he was willing to die for you. Give back what is his today. And if you need to give your life to Jesus today, meet us in the back and we're going to pray with you and walk you through uh, giving your life to him. Our communion cups are in the back and on the sides here and you guys can go and get them uh, as we go into this communion time. I I just want to remind you as you're sitting there and you're taking your communion of the sacrifice that Jesus made, the blood that was shed on the cross and the body that was broken for you. Not so that we could live however we want, Not so that we can be stuck in our sin. God wants more for you than that. God wants more for you than to be stuck 
and trapped and a slave to sin. He wants you to be free today. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Father God, we thank you so much for the freedom that we have in you. God, I pray that this morning as we are uh, partaking of the cup and of the bread, that God, we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made. God, I pray that each person here, whatever it is that they're holding back from you, whatever sin is in their life that they're holding back, whatever, uh, whatever security they feel like they find in this world, that God, they would learn to let it go and to trust you with all that they have. We ask these things in your heavenly name. Amen.